Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Let us pray. To you, O God, we offer this time. From our busy lives, we step to one side or sit in a pew or be still and hear the still small voice of your spirit speak. We recognize this day that we stand on the shoulders of greats, of those who have gone before us in the great tradition of the Reformation. And while we might invoke their names, it is the spirit that they left for us that is really meaningful. And so may we continue the great traditions of the Reformation. Sola Scripturia, sola gratia, sola fides. By the word alone, by grace alone, by faith alone. And may we hear your word in that same spirit through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Redeemer. Amen. I'm not sure how many of you have watched the incredible Netflix series, The Crown. But I decided this last week, along with Muriel, to reprise some of the great shows that were on there, some of the great episodes. And one of them that stood out for me, and recognizing that it is fiction with a historical twist, I watched the one where the queen was crowned, the coronation from June the 2nd, 1953. And I watched it with great interest and I watched it also because of another tertiary character, and that was the Duke of Windsor, who evidently watched it from a distance. And while, of course, the words and the text and the script were made up, there was a moment when he was watching young Elizabeth be crowned, and he said, we are but mere mortals. But then watching the anointing said, but in so doing she becomes divine-like. The coronation stood out for me as a profoundly emotional moment, particularly with the anointing of oil and particularly the religious symbolism that was there. Now I know that in our society, in our world today, we are living with a certain ironic approach to such things. On the one hand, we have a love of power and a love of sovereignty and a love of things that are sort of beyond ourselves. We still love pomp and ceremony and power at times, and we certainly appreciate it and are sometimes even fixated in the media on royalty. On the other hand, we live in an egalitarian world, a world that sees each individual as being as important as the next, certainly in theory anyway, if not in practice. 
And that we like to think maybe that in an enlightened era when we cast our minds away from colonial things, that we can live without pomp and ceremony and circumstance and sovereignty and elevation of others. But we live with this irony, don't we? We live with this tension between both loving it but not necessarily knowing whether we embrace it. And as a culture, we're a little bit confused. We're also a little bit confused because as those who ascribe to a biblical faith, we realize that rooted throughout it all are great themes of monarchy and royalty and power. One need only read the Psalms some of which were coronation psalms designed for the praise of the king to realize that sovereignty was very, very important in the Old Testament. I take Psalm 110 as an example. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends out from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your foes. Your people will offer themselves willingly on the day you lead your forces on the holy mountains. From the womb of the morning, like dew, your youth will come to you. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Here is articulated in this psalm the relationship between the priestly office and that of the king. The priestly office which anoints the king for the purposes of carrying out the work of God. And you can't read the Old Testament without continually tripping over and being confronted by the great kings of Israel with Saul and the dark days of his reign, to David and the glorious days of the Davidic rule, to Solomon and the excesses of him and all subsequent monarchs. No, it's rooted right there. It's in there. But always with the proviso that a ruling monarch is still under the sovereignty of someone greater than themselves that no matter what you ascribe to a monarch on earth as mortals, to quote the Duke of Windsor, the sovereignty ultimately lies with Yahweh, with Almighty God. And that was a belief that was rooted and grounded in Scripture very early on. The Reformers, the Protestant Reformers, picked up on that theme also. They talked about Jesus in terms of monarchy. They talked about Jesus with three great phrases, that he was a prophet, that he was a priest, and that he was a king. That Jesus of Nazareth had a coronation. The coronation was of thorns on a cross between two thieves. That he rules because of his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father. 
The language then that is used by the reformers and arises from Scripture is that of Christ being sovereign, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And this is a theme that was picked up by the reformers time and time again. They believed in the sovereignty of God above all things. Above all things. Above all dominions. Above all powers. Above everything. Above every name. They believed that Jesus Christ was the ultimate sovereign. And so that was the language that was used. But where did all of this come from? On what scriptural grounds did the reformers base their conviction? Well, the passage that Laurie read for us from the book of Ephesians today would be one such text. It talks about the sovereignty of Jesus in the terms that we've just spoken of. Jesus sitting at the right hand of God the Father, of Jesus having dominion, of Jesus having power. But you have to understand that the reason the Apostle Paul put so much emphasis on that was due to the fact that there were other sovereignties in his time. There were other gods and goddesses that were being worshipped above that of Jesus Christ and above that of the Heavenly Father. And one of these emerged actually, believe it or not, from Jewish mysticism. And Jewish mysticism in the, the time of Paul had this belief that there were sort of from God descending powers or descending beings who came from the heavens. And these descending beings were spiritual beings to which we as human beings had to ultimately give our homage and our praise. That these were the ones to whom we turned. But we had to appease these beings. We had to do certain things, believe certain things, have knowledge of certain things, to have access to these heavenly beings. I know this all sounds weird to you, but it was very real in the first century. And people lived in fear. They lived in fear of these beings. And these beings sort of had a sovereign hold on them. And they were mythological, but the myth of them was powerful and palpable, and people lived under their influence. So Paul, knowing that the earliest Christians were also associated with Jewish temples, were running into this form of mysticism, not universally accepted, I might add, but certainly one particularly in Asia Minor and around Ephesus was very much in vogue. So this belief that these were these divine beings that dropped from heaven that had kind of a sovereign hold over us for good or bad. Paul, in response to that then, talks about the sovereignty of Jesus. He also, though, talked about the power and the sovereignty of Jesus within the context of a Roman Empire. A Roman Empire whose military might was enormous still in the first century, though waning somewhat. That they had the cult of Caesar, 
And people worshipped. I mean, can you imagine? They worshipped Caesar. They believed in the cult of Caesar. And what the Caesar said, the people did. And the power of Rome, and the military power to back up the, the, the power of Caesar was enormous and would oppress little nations and would keep people down. And so the earliest Christians are confronting kind of this spirituality of mysticism with all these kind of little gods in the air and they're confronting the power of Rome, telling them what to do and how they're to live and who they should believe in, all the time as a fledgling group believing in this person called Jesus Christ. And Paul affirmed to them that above all these powers, above all these principalities, there was Jesus Christ. And this was their confession. And this was what they were willing to die for. And when I look at this passage from Ephesians, I can't help, and I know that some people think it was written a little bit later on as Paul was maybe in his declining years and that he used a scribe to write it. But the more I read this, the more I think, my heavenly day, how important is this message in every era? Never mind the sovereignty of the time in which Paul lived, but in every era there is something profoundly liberating about what Paul said. The people who heard Paul felt themselves set free from the bondage to these kind of mythical and legendary things and were set free from the power of Rome to live as Jesus Christ would have them live. I think, my friends, that the notion of sovereignty and the notion of power is as relevant today for us as it was for the people in the time of Paul. And I think maybe over COVID, we have seen a head-on collision in some ways of our different theories of power and sovereignty and a hold over our lives. Let me explain what I think. I think we're living in a day and age that is inherited this idea of scientia potentia est, science or knowledge is power. And that has been part of our Western culture, probably from the 16th century and Francis Bacon to Hobbes and his famous Leviathan, where he used the very same phrase, knowledge is power. He said so in the 17th century. And we have lived with this belief that the more knowledge you accumulate, the more scientific examples you can have, the greater your rationality and your ability to understand and know your environment, the greater the ability to have control over it. And we have heard, have we not, so many people still articulating that same principle over and over again, trust science. Believe in science, believe in rationality, believe in knowledge, because knowledge is power. And that those who have that knowledge have enormous power over other people and enormous influence. 
which can be used for good, as we've seen with vaccines, or it can be used for ill, to subjugate the weak and the poor. But we find that that notion of knowledge as power is really a sovereignty matter. It's what ultimately holds us and keeps us. On the other hand, we're living in a culture in the 20th and 21st century that questions whether or not that should have a sovereign power over us. But rather like the philosopher Foucault, we believe that maybe it is we as the subjects who determine who should have power over us. And that you decide, and you decide, and I decide where power resides. That the ultimate authority in our lives is actually our own will, and what we deem to be right, and to be deemed to be true. This, I believe, has led to a collision, even over vaccines. I think that notion of scientific sovereignty is adhered to by many, but questioned by others on their basis of their own personal subjectivity. And we see this clash of, of sovereignty, which is going on within our own culture, and maybe I might add, even within our own hearts and our own selves, if we're true. That we're sometimes unsure, and sometimes we ascribe power to others over us, and other times we question those powers. So don't think that the issue of sovereignty is just some sort of philosophical thing. Don't think it is just rooted in the biblical monarchs or just rooted in the passage from the book of Ephesians today. Because what Paul is saying ultimately is that regardless of the sovereignties of this world, he uses the phrase, all powers. Now the great Reformation hymn writer Sir Isaac Watts, we sang his hymn this morning, have you noticed? Jesus shall reign where'er the sun. That regardless of what happens, Jesus shall reign. In a little while, the choir is going to sing a beautiful but more contemporary piece, reflecting maybe some of the images of our day when we sing or they sing above all above all powers. For the Apostle Paul, all powers, all sovereignty, either ascribed to reason and knowledge or ascribed to our own subjective wills, just like the monarch, is under a sovereignty that is greater, that reaches beyond it. And Paul says that this is manifested this sovereignty is manifested in the ministry and the word of what? The body of Christ, the church. That it is through those who believe that God's sovereignty and the word of God's sovereignty and of Christ's rule is proclaimed and heard. I love a writer called Ian Thomas, who was the founder of the Capon Ray uh, way of bringing Christians together for fellowship. And Ian Thomas describes the church in the light of Ephesians as sort of a glove. And the glove that can only be animated, that has nothing 
going for itself, no power of its own, except the hand that is put into it. And he describes the church as a glove and the power of the Holy Spirit and of Christ as the hand that motivates and moves the glove. The church without the sovereignty and power and animating grace of God is nothing. But the glove animated and moved by the power of Christ becomes in a sense the body, the instrument whereby God can do wonderful things. Now unfortunately, unfortunately, this has been misunderstood at times. This notion of the sovereignty of the church has taken on by virtue of its own mortality and by virtue of its own error, a sense that it has to mimic the powers of this world, that it has to show itself and reveal itself in power and majesty in worldly terms. And we have seen throughout history that happening. We've seen it with the subjugation of nations and the poor. We've seen it in militarism. We have seen it in authorities, in ecclesiastical powers who have used their power for the sake of political purposes. But the reformers all knew what Paul knew. And that is without Christ and without following humbly his example, and recognizing that his coronation was as a crucified Lord, that his elevation was based on God's activity in raising him from the dead, God the Father's activity in raising him from the dead, that that is the very heart of the sovereignty that we have and that we espouse and that we proclaim. Not, says Paul, as the world gives. Not, as Jesus said, as the world gives. But rather, as God reveals. And why I believe our society today still needs to hear that word. Over the last few weeks, well, the last month, I suppose... I have been inundated with cards and notes and letters, and inundated in the most positive way. But some of them have caught me completely off guard, completely off guard. Some of them have come from people who run homeless shelters in the city. Some have come from food programs in the city. Some have come from a group of women who help trafficked young women who are used as prostitutes in our city and try and redeem them. Some of them have come from youth organizations helping families in poorer parts of the city. And I confess, I must admit humbly, that I had no idea the reach of our church and the reach of the ministry and the encouragement that we have given and continue to give, and will continue to give, so many. These have been personal letters, but they haven't been about me really at all, in fact. They've been about the ministry of our church, quietly, sometimes humbly, silently, doing amazing work. 
Anyone who's attended RAA groups here knows that just our willingness, whenever possible, to have been open for them when we could has meant the world. Those who have been fed through our food bank quietly have said the same thing. And I have heard from so many people who have been helped with these things, and they just wanted me to know. They just wanted me to know. I think sovereignty, you see, is the sovereignty of Christ, and it's the sovereignty of service. It's not about doing good works because good works somehow redeem us. Oh, may that never be as a Protestant. But the things that reflect what the church's mission really are like, humbly following the person of Jesus Christ. It's his sovereignty, his monarchy, his power that is greater than the power of the world. And we must never forget it. This was illustrated some years ago when I visited my grandmother along with two of my cousins. And um, I have told this story actually in a Bible study group once, and you all laughed at this. My cousins were playing in the living room of my grandmother. Fortunately, I was in another room and escaped the ignominy of the moment. And they collided with a glass bookcase and there were a series of plates and cups and saucers that were in that, that came crashing down and broke all over the floor. My grandmother came in and she was in tears. These were the coronation plates from 1953. These were the coronation cups. You've probably seen them. You might even have them in her glass cabinet. She loved these things. She felt somehow by having these, she was bonded to the monarch, that she was sort of there, as it were, and had watched it on television at somebody else's house, for my grandmother didn't have a television. But there was a sense that this was, this was so precious to us. And it was lying on the floor and it was broken. And I came downstairs and I saw the debacle that had occurred. I thank the Lord Almighty that I hadn't been there. And I looked at my dear cousins who were absolutely gobsmacked when they saw what they had done. And I watched my grandmother on her knees picking up every single piece of pottery and trying to put it back together. It meant the world to her. It was as if her monarch had been broken. Well, our monarch was broken. Our monarch was crucified. But our monarch was raised from the dead. And above all other powers, and above all other sovereignties, and above all other principalities, he rules from the cross. He rules as the Lord. I love the words of Isaac Watts. He wrote a Christmas hymn too. And he said, he rules the earth with truth and grace.
this Reformation Sunday. Don't forget that.